brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a very special guest. His name is Louis Navalier, and he is best known as a stock picker and newsletter writer, as well as an asset manager running about $2.5 billion at Navalier & Company. If you were a financial television viewer in the 90s or 2000s, you very much probably saw Louis uh, on TV discussing uh, the markets, talking about how and why he picks various small cap stocks and, and his approach of using both quantitative and, and behavioral uh, information in order to make stock selections. Uh, no less an authority than the Holbert Financial Digest named one of his newsletters as the top performing stock selecting newsletter of the past 20 years. Uh, and although we all know that past performance is no guarantee of future returns, what I found so fascinating about my conversation with Louis was the approach he took to selecting stocks and how that grew out of a project that he began in college. What What is so interesting is Navalier and Company is pretty much the only job he's ever had right out of school. In college, he was working on a project to try and find a cheaper way to put together a S&P 500 uh, substitute. In other words, match the performance of the S&P 500, uh, but using less stocks in order to keep your costs down. And unfortunately, they were unable to do that. Uh, They ran into a problem in that the index that they were putting together kept outperforming the S&P 500. And so based on the research that had gone into that, uh, he launched Navalier and Company. He launched his own newsletter right out of school, was pretty successful right off the bat, and has grown it into uh, quite the successful business. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Louis Navalier. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I have a very special guest. His name is Louis Navalier. He is the founder of Navalier and Associates. And if you have been involved in the markets for any length of time, you certainly have to be familiar uh, with Mr. Navalier. He is well regarded as both a stock picker and a long-term investor. Uh, He started a newsletter in 1980, which the Holbert Financial Digest called his Emerging Growth Newsletter as the number one performer over a 20-year period, looking from 1985 to 2005. Uh, In 1987, he began managing assets for individuals. His office currently runs more than 2.5% billion dollars. If you look at the period from 1985 through 2008, following the advice of our guest, you would have seen gains of over 2,000% versus the S&P 500 index, which had an increase of barely 869%. Louis Navalier, welcome to Bloomberg. It's great to be here. So I am familiar with your career for a long time. You, You were a fixture on the media in the media in the 1990s and, and beyond, uh, but your career kind of uh, started unusually. You began in 1980, 
deep into a multi-decade bear market, what what made you in 1980 say, I know, let's go buy equities? Well, prior to 1980, uh, actually when I was in college, um, I was building um, index products. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had access to Wells Fargo's computers, and index funds hadn't taken off then, but they were they were starting up. So we were trying to figure out how many stocks we needed to mirror the S&P 500. And the yeah. obvious answer wasn't 500, no, or was, can I, we do it with less and get the same correct. returns? Correct. It's all the tracking correlation. Anyway, mm-hmm. I figured I needed 332 stocks. So I was very proud of this 332 stock portfolio designed to track the S&P. But I have to admit to you, I was a failure. It started to beat the market, which was not the objective. <laughs> That's tracking error in the right direction. Correct. So I learned that I was lied to. There are, there are anomalies on Wall Street. Uh, there are high alpha stocks. So I went out to document these anomalies. And originally, I started in small cap, and I'm still highly ranked there. But I, uh, I'm predominantly a large cap manager right now. Because I remember you as a small cap stock picker from the 1990s, and really a quant before we use the term quant. Is that a, is that a fair statement? That's correct. Um, our, our quant is just basically designed to find great risk-adjusted performance and also to lock in on the fundamental anomalies that everybody's trying to identify. So we're a little different than most quants. Most quants nowadays just want a front-run order flow, whether it's uh, the hedge funds front-running the HFT order flow and just riding. It's kind of like surfing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's uh, the quants that uh, basically front-run the Russell rebalancing every year. So uh, you know, at the end of June, Russell does all its rebalancing. That's a huge deal for all the tracking managers because they want to be ahead of the rebalancing and the ETFs come in and pop everything. So my quant is totally different. It's I just want great risk-adjusted performance. As things get volatile, we tiptoe out, and I have to make sure they're always fundamentally superior. But what Wall Street wants fundamentally is changing. And that's the fun part of what we do is is um, what we do is called behavioral finance. We lock mm-hmm. in um, what's working on Wall Street, and we score the stocks on that criteria. And then we tweak our models quarterly. So so let's talk about those fundamental anomalies. What What is a fundamental anomaly, and then how can an investor profit from that? Well, uh, we actually put all the research free on our websites, both on the publishing side and our, our management company site. But we have a dividend grader and a stock grader there. The dividend grader is mostly about you know return on equity, cash flow, uh, d- uh, sustainability, increasing dividends. Well, when you get to the stock grader, it's things like sales growth, margin expansion, earnings stability, earnings momentum, ca- cash flow, um, return on equity, analyst earnings revisions, earnings surprises. Now, those aren't just all the criteria. We test. And when you get to small cap, surprises are a bigger deal, and so is momentum. When you get to large cap, stability is a bigger deal. Okay, and that's interesting. So you have different rules in different neighborhoods, and um, those fundamental rules sound somewhat similar—not identical, but somewhat similar—to what the marketers these days are calling smart beta. Is that a is that a accurate assessment? Sure, I, I have one, I have a smart beta ETF with Oppenheimer. I've had it for years, and uh, that ETF happens to be sales weighted, rebounds mm-hmm. every quarter. So they basically took our top 100 A-rated stocks, and, and we rebalanced quarterly to it. The thing with any smart beta product is what what does it cost you to get in and out? Sure. Okay? And in the ETF world, you got to be careful because ETFs can have premiums to get in and discounts mm-hmm. to get out. So you got to be really re- careful the rebalancing costs. Um, so I, I think some of the smart beta products aren't as successful as they should be because of the actual trading costs to get in and out. It, it's just a traditional drag of taxes, expenses, turnover costs, et cetera. Is that, is that the problem? Or do you mean buying the ETF itself 
trading at a discount or premium to its NAV. That last point. Ah, there you See, go. See, Stanford, UCLA, and Arneson University came out with a study last year that said that ETFs cost more than buying and selling stocks. It was scandalous. Everybody says, they don't cost anything. They're free. These are nice people. No, 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 no. <laughs> There's an the, internal expense the, ratio that reflects all these costs. Correct. But the specialist on the exchange likes to charge you a premium mm -hmm. and likes it uh, when you buy and likes to charge you a discount when you sell. And then shortly after that study came out, we had August 24th. And what happened on the morning of August 24th, uh, 1,278 stocks couldn't be priced because they hit the little circuit breakers on the stock exchange. Mm -hmm. When they dropped more than 5%, they slowed the trading down. And for some reason, the specialists on the exchange kept trading ETFs even though they couldn't price the stocks. Mm -hmm. So you had all these big liquid ETFs being discounted at a shocking level. And so the ETF industry still has to deal with this. There's a big SEC investigation into this. But uh, this is a big problem. And... Um, we're not anti-ETF, but we basically want everybody to know that when they turn the liquidity off of the market, don't sell your ETF. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Louis Navalier. He is best known as a small cap stock picker. These days, he's a big cap manager, a quantitative fundamental analyst and newsletter writer, as well as running $2.5 billion dollars. Let's start out with a little bit of your academic uh, undergraduate work and, and talk about uh, your your brand of quantitative analysis. So you're at Cal State. You're doing this research project to mimic the S&P 500. What makes you as a, a, a young kid say, hey, I think I could beat the market? I didn't. I, I, I'm, I'm basically from Berkeley, California. Mm -hmm. I'm fully trained in socialism. I was taught that we're all supposed <laughs> to earn the same amount of money. If or we, if we don't, at least we share it with, yeah, it, with correct. everybody but, else. But the reason we're all supposed to uh, earn the same amount of money, we're all supposed to index, is because if we don't, we'll have create social unrest. Mm -hmm. And so for you know peace, love, harmony, we're all supposed to just blindly follow each other and, um, and buy this, then index. Um, however, Jack Bogle would disagree with you, but go on. I, I have no problem debating with Mr. <laughs> Bogle. I respect him highly. The um, But the real issue is, is that um, indexing evolved because they passed a law called ERISA. Mm -hmm. And ERISA says we need to match this benchmark to cover our butt. So basically, that's why indexing evolved. And of course, they started with the S&P. And they've created monsters. Okay, To be honest with you, if you go back to the go-go 90s, the big stocks are getting bigger because of the cap weight in the S&P. Uh, just before the bubble burst in March of 2000, 54% of the S&P was in seven giant tech stocks. The, the issue I have with indexing and people that just blindly buy baskets of stocks, they have no idea what they're buying fundamentally. Okay. So let me push back on you a little bit. Didn't we see something similar in the late 60s with the Nifty 50, where the names that everybody knew, they were household names, they were all doing great, and all the managers used that as their benchmark and everyone piled in to the same 50 stocks, which ultimately collapsed. You had the 57% drop from 73 to 74. Is is that very different than what took place uh, in the late 90s, it's, early 2000s? It's 2000? exactly the same thing, except in the go-go 90s, it was concentrated in fewer stocks. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we had the whole FANG issue last year, Okay, right. where the, the top 10 stocks um, in the S&P 500 did better than the other 490, but Facebook, Facebook Amazon, uh, Netflix, and um, Google... Uh, overpowered it. And actually, that was an ETF story. You see, 
the, e- the equally weighted ETFs got mm-hmm. hit so hard in August, some of the big wirehouses said, get the hell out of these things, go back to cap-weighted. Right. So as they paraded out of equal- Usually at just the wrong time. Correct. As they paraded out of equal into cap in the last four months of the year, they made the big stocks bigger. As we started this year, I was, I'm not anti-FANG, but I was especially anti-Netflix mm-hmm. because- it was over 400 times earnings at the beginning of the year. Its earnings were forecasted to slide. So I, I wrote everybody to stay away, even though it was number one performer. I had some issues, valuations issues with Amazon, but I've since done an about face because I was very impressed with Amazon's first quarter, making money in the cloud, taking on Netflix. And actually, they're even taking on Apple. Mm-hmm. If you buy an Apple TV, you can't get Amazon Prime because they don't, they, they, they no have their app, own device. Trust me, I'm aware of Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, you know, bubbles are created by these indices. I would respectfully argue that Tesla's valuation was largely caused by the QQQ. When Oracle left the QQQ, they put in Tesla and it couldn't handle the money. And so you have to realize getting added to some of these baskets is the greatest thing that ever happens to some of these companies. Mm-hmm. But uh, the market right now is just too darn narrow to buy the baskets. So and, you don't think Netflix at 400 times earnings? You don't think they're going to grow into that valuation? No, I don't. I, and, I, and Amazon has been overvalued, I think, forever. Is that, is that a fair statement? That is correct. So let, let me just walk you through Amazon because I did an about face on it because mm-hmm. I'm, I guess, slightly bipolar about it. By the it. way, I'm a huge fan of both okay. companies sure. as as a consumer, not necessarily as an correct. investor. And my family does the same. We both subscribe to them. So here's here's my issue with Amazon. Last year, it hit almost a 1,000 times trailing earnings. It lost money the first three quarters. The fourth quarter earnings were disaster, 38% below analyst estimates. Uh, the best thing I could say about Amazon late last year was trading at 200 times forecasted earnings. When I saw the first quarter results, I did an about-face. First, they surprised. They're making a lot of money in cloud computing. Mm-hmm. They are taking on Netflix and programming. You may know they paid those top gear guys to, to sure. leave the BBC. Ton of money. Only well, they already they kind of had left. They were on the well, way out yeah, of the BBC. They got anyway. fired and they they had landed at Amazon. But the, the two hundred fifty million is pretty good for three guys. I, I realize it has a production team and a budget on top they, of that. They have a ton of great programs. Yeah. Man in the High Tower is one, and yeah. then there's Catastrophe. There, there's a whole run. They've become must see. Correct. TV. Correct. And um, and when you buy a Sony TV, you have a, a uh, an Amazon Prime app on it, built uh, right in, built in. You can't get that app again on the Apple TV. So their and the, their devices, they think it's better than the Apple TV, and I'll let them slug it out with Apple. But uh, the the other thing they they got going for them, other than taking on Netflix and Apple, is again that cloud computing. They are continuing to dominate. Everyone can't wait to have their drone delivery. Um, <laughs> they're going to start it first in the UK. You do have to put out a little mat for your drone delivery uh, uh-huh. because uh, that's how it hones in on well, it. Correct. And uh, so if the dog gets it. Or if the sprinklers get it, it's your fault. Okay, mm-hmm. so but you have to have a mat. You know, I was reluctant to join Prime until a couple of years ago. I finally joined Amazon Prime, and now I don't even think about something. You need it, you twitch, you buy it, it's there in two days. And half the time, it's not there in two days, it's there in a day. It's it's So they're on to something. If one day they figure out how to make money, they're going to be really big. Well, they, they finally figured it out, and that's why I've done an about-face, and now they're surprising, they're capturing market share. And, you know, Wall Street is desperate for sales growth. When the uh, second quarter earnings come out, it's going to be the sixth quarter in a row of negative sales in the S&P, largely because the multinationals, the commodity stocks, right. are hurt by the strong dollar. So anything that has positive sales growth is an oasis at this moment. So we're, we're no longer going to be able to use weak oil as an excuse for that because oil is now hovering between 45 and 50. When it was under $30, it was easy to say, hey, oil has collapsed. But now it seems to be moving back towards a profitable 
Correct. And the, and the energy companies are doing well because natural gas prices are up. This little heat wave we're having is helping. However- For electricity generation. Yes. However, I, I have to say this. Oil always goes up in the spring mm-hmm. and then always goes down in the fall. The inventories in America have tightened up. However, they're still higher than they were last year. They're higher than they are historically. Rotterdam in Europe is full. We can't mm-hmm. put any more oil there. They're still storing oil on tankers with nowhere to go. Right. And so we still have a glut. Oil demand's going up globally, but the supply went up faster. Iraq is online. Iran is online. Ar- and the U.S. fracking is just going crazy. Correct. And um, what's happening is that Iraq is the big player. If I have a chart when I do seminars that shows where all the production's coming from. And, and the margin, marginal editor to correct. supply. And Iraq is much bigger than all the fracking that we've got, but now you got Iran coming online, depends on the tankers, and everybody's trying to outdo each other. So we're not going to know where oil is till this, till, till September. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Louis Navalier. He is a quant, money manager, stock picker, newsletter writer. He has been... Uh, actually running running cash for almost 30 years and has been in the business for for longer than that um let's jump right into the whole idea of mutual funds and etfs you're you're an advisor to a number of funds and a number of etfs what are some of the disadvantages of those two structures and and what are some of the advantages well i think i should just tell you why i invest in them personally sure okay um uh, I married a Canadian. Uh, she has uh, money in the Caymans and a, and a trust. Uh, we have to report to the IRS. Uh, we're not allowed to buy U.S. funds over there, so I buy my ETF with Oppenheimer over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that ETF's fine if you want to buy and hold. Um, it is not meant to trade. The spreads are still a little bit too wide. As it gets more liquid, maybe that'll change. But I think ETFs are better for buy and hold investing than than trading because of the, the, that academic study that ETFs cost more to buy and sell. And then ETFs seem to have some liquidity issues on during flash crashes, things like that. Mm-hmm. So buy and hold is fine. Trading, no. Now, uh, uh, over 90% of my personal money is in funds. So why, did I, why do I do that? Well, I do it for a very selfish reason. Um, I sold a big chunk of my business a few years ago at a cash event. And so I have a lot of taxable money in the market. When I see a mutual fund and then I run around and grow it uh, because people like me or whatever, Something happens. What happens is, is the assets pouring in the fund dilute the taxes. Mm-hmm. So I run to places like New York and Los Angeles, and I tell everybody that you, New Yorkers don't have to move to Florida, that people in LA don't have to move to Nevada, just invest in one of my growing funds because you won't pay your fair share of taxes. If I grow a fund tenfold in fiscal year, we will only pay 10% of the taxes we should. If I grow it fivefold, we'll only pay 20 so this is a function of mutual fund accounting. So mm-hmm. I purposely seed funds with my own money, and then I promote them and try to get them to grow uh, so I can better compound my money and help people stay in Los Angeles and New York. So does that technique only work when you have funds growing rapidly, or would that work with any fund that's seeded and subsequently grows? Th- that is correct. I left a fund company that I'd been with over for 17 years as a sub-advisor, and I left them last year at the end of the first quarter, and I was proud I was top 1%. But the tax time bomb that went off in that fund was just devastating. Really? And uh, so basically when funds shrink, they become tax time bonds. When they grow, they're tax efficient. And so I, that's why I've seeded uh, funds with my own money. And uh, they're all new, and they're all not that big. 
but I'm having a ball and I, I hope people don't think bad about me that I'm helping them compound their money faster. But l- let's just say for argument's sake, Hillary does become president mm-hmm. and she gets her way and we have to wait six years for long-term capital gains. As okay. opposed to three years. What, well, one year on stocks, it's 12 months in a day. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is um, that will help my business. No, no. What I mean is there was a proposal that it was a three-year wait for long-term capital gains. Versus one year in a day today. Well, whatever, if they lengthen it. Six years is, I haven't heard six years, so you said that and my jaw dropped. This is when she was running against Bernie and was, uh, okay. it, it was an f- original proposal. But the if she's modified, that's a good sign. Of course, her husband cut capital gains, so yes. maybe they should talk to each other about this. So. You know, the, the traditional <laughs> politics is you run to either extreme and then Correct. pivot to the middle. Correct. I don't think anybody has mentioned that to, to the Donald, pivot to the middle. <laughs> I assume by the time this airs, he will have begun that pivoting process. She's early stages of that. Gotcha. But six years is a ridiculous period of time for long-term capital. That's correct. And and the bottom line is people are stressed over taxes. You know, I'm originally from California, and I I just see the stress uh, in everybody's face over there. And they... The, the steps they go to to avoid uh, paying taxes is quite interesting. So, so let's let's talk about that. You're a multi-state sort of guy. Your offices, so Navalier and Associates listed in Nevada, correct? Correct. Our ops compliance trading is in Nevada. I still have a home there. All right. And you live in Florida. I live in the Palm Beach area. So you only like sunny places. I can't argue with that. <laughs> but I do have a, our private client group in New York City. I have uh, our, our publishing business in Rockville, Maryland. But uh, basically, tax-free states are very interesting places. Mm-hmm. Um, Reno is a, a fascinating place because Reno has the, the Schwab office there. The last I saw was the biggest in the world. Shanghai's number two. Really? Um, and what it is in California, barely 3,000 people pay half that state's taxes. So what they do is a lot of people like to put their money in Nevada, buy a home in Lake Tahoe or in the hills somewhere. Right. And, um, and then they drive back to California. And as long as they don't spend more than five months there, they can live in California and not have to pay that 13 3 Five months in New York, it's six months to the day. If you're here six months in a day, correct. You owe, you owe the full ride. Correct. New York will hunt you down the rest of your life, and that's uh-huh. that. But and Cal- it was a big case. Someone literally a plane made an unscheduled landing for thirty minutes and then took off after it refueled. They counted that as the day. <laughs> of course, they actually lost in the New York lost in in court. <laughs> but that's how much they're going after uh, the six months yeah. rule. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Louis Navalier. He is a quant and stock picker, managing about $2.5 billion uh, across the United States. Let's talk a little bit about modeling and and quants. Uh, What do you think people misunderstand about the idea of using mathematics to evaluate and manage assets? Well, I think the main thing that people should realize is a lot of the quants are, are basically doing it on order flow. So they're the nose on the dog versus the tail on the dog. Mm-hmm. And whether they're trying to trade ahead of the Russell realignment, a tracking manager, or whether they're trying to, to, to surf the HFT systems, uh, the high-frequency trading systems in that order flow, that's a lot of the hedge funds do that. In my case, it's about getting great risk-adjusted performance. My system at this moment says Facebook is safer than Kroger. Mm-hmm. That may not be intuitive to you, but that's what it is. And if you chartered both, you'd see it. So obviously there's some more buying pressure under Facebook than there is Kroger. We know that Kroger's a lower PE and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's the first step of quant. But then I 
basically try to I score my stocks on various fundamental criteria that are very very important because they're influencing all the order flow on Wall Street and there are quarters where earnings don't work but I can tell you they're working the last couple of quarters mm-hmm. and I go into every earnings season locked and loaded with fundamental spirit stocks and I really enjoy earnings season so I'm a little old school you know um I do meet a lot of 40 year olds that's think i'm nuts for doing fundamentals okay yeah. and these are gatekeepers <laughs> at big firms okay um uh, i have a kid that goes to stanford that's been highly recruited by some of the hedge funds to build the algorithmic models to uh basically uh, trade off the hft systems and adapt he thinks he he's never taken an accounting class he wonders why i do fundamentals okay mm-hmm. and um but uh you know, I'm not one of those quants. I, I'm a tax-efficient quant. Uh, I hold stocks for over five quarters on average. I get predominantly long-term gains. Um, the interesting thing about our models nowadays is dividend growth has invaded all our models because the S&P yields more than treasuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dividends were cut in the first quarter, 84% were in the energy sector. And the companies that are still boosting the dividends when others are cutting are an oasis. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we've had this huge bond rally. And so dividends look a lot better nowadays. And, of course, they are tax efficient by and large. So when we look at uh, the world of dividend stocks, how impactful has the Fed's policy of, of zero interest rates been to that sector of the universe? The Fed is caused this. The Fed is not driving the bus anymore. I am extremely frustrated by the Fed. Uh, I don't know why they have to, like in December, they told us inflation's coming back, the economy's going to be strong, so we're going to have four rate increases. Then in in March, they said, oh, uh, economy's not as strong as we thought, inflation isn't here yet, we only have two rate increases. And of course, Janet Yellen made it very clear, we're going to have one or no rate increases uh, uh, the other week, after the FOMC minutes. our Fed, I, I, I personally think they're manipulated by Goldman. Okay, mm-hmm. there's a lot of Goldman economists that are chummy with the Fed economists, and maybe by getting a the bit Fed of a revolving door there. Well, obviously the Fed economists would like to work at Goldman. Okay, right. <laughs> and you have the you have the New York Fed chief or or the head of research, a former uh, absolutely. Oh, and by the way, Does Janet it? Janet Yellen, in front of her congressional testimony the other day pointed out that the private economists say this. Okay, so now she's now quoting the private economists. The truth is there's a lot of money around the world, and uh, with negative yields in Germany, Japan, Switzerland, money's going to keep pouring in the United States as right. long as we have higher rates than the rest of the world, as long as our currency is relatively stable, and as long as our economy is relatively decent. And I would make an argument that this strong dollar environment that has been haunting the United States and crushing corporate profits for the multinationals and commodity stocks is going to continue until our rates are as low as everybody else. And our Fed is not driving the bus. You know, under Bernanke, it was incredible. He he spoke at the London School of Economics with Mervyn King in the audience mm-hmm. and Draghi, and he said, I didn't just save the world. I didn't save the U.S. I saved the world. But he, Draghi, Mervyn King all went to MIT together. Right. But now we have Mr. Carey, a Canadian running the Bank of England. Uh, 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 King retired. Uh, Yellen replaced uh, uh, Bernanke. She went to Yale. And there's no coordination with the central bank activity anymore. And so the market forces are really driving this. And, of course, the low interest rate environment is causing buybacks explode. Mm-hmm. My cheap, average Cheap borrowing, go out and buy all the stocks Absolutely. You want, now it's enough. exploding internationally because the rates are even lower there. My average large cap stock retires 6.2% of its float a year. That's amazing. You know, when you look at that, what you describe as coordinated, 
it's a little out of phase because you had the U.S. start and finish their QE, and just as uh, Japan was was starting their QE, and they're a couple of years into it, and finally Europe is catching. Oh, maybe this QE thing is is a thing. So the conditions that have existed for the past five years, you're suggesting. This is going to continue to go on Absolutely. for the foreseeable I, future. I don't know how the ECB, the European Central Bank, gets out of this mess. They're not only at minus 40 basis points. When they boosted their quantitative easing by 20 billion euros a month, they all, the big thing wasn't the money. It says, oh, now you can buy corporate debt. Yeah, they move beyond yeah. just driving rates lower. And Japan has always put their quantitative easing in all kinds of funny places. At right. least They've here, been buying stock as well. They're cute. Cor- they buy Real estate, they buy everything. It's 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 amazing. It's, of course, it's in a, a, like a, a read over there, but um, <laughs> it's it's this worldwide limbo contest, and uh, I would respectively argue that uh, our rates are going to be driven lower by all the foreign. Where I live in Florida, I'm the only American on my street. It's all Russians and Europeans now, and they've all, but they've all bought homes in Florida. And they basically, is that to move money out of the country? Or absolutely. Is that because- the Russians are up 60% in the last few years because the ruble went to pot. And then the Europeans are probably up 20 plus percent. This has nothing to do with real estate. This is just currency. If you look at the West Coast, if you look at Seattle, Portland, Vancouver especially, it's a lot of China money trying to get out of the country. There are these brand new office buildings in Vancouver, completely sold and still mostly empty. The opposite of the... Remember the see-through office towers in Dallas during the oil collapse Correct. in the 80s? Mm-hmm. This is see-through uh, residential towers in Vancouver due to Chinese money fleeing. Well, my, my son who's at Stanford uh, has a lot of Chinese friends, and uh, he's met all their parents because when they their kids went to school here, they happened to come here. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, it's not a problem getting in the United States if you bring some assets. And um, I, know, over. I know we're in an election year. I'm not running for anything, but if I was... I would recommend we invite 100 million new foreigners uh-huh. with about 2 million each, okay, to come to America. That and Sounds like a plan. And that's that's what happened to Canada. Canada was broke 30 years ago. They doubled the size of their country by letting in people with money, mm-hmm. okay? So one thing you can say about America is at least we ha- our immigration is controversial, but we are letting a lot of very talented people in with money. And of course, there is this corruption crackdown in China that seems to be expediting it. Interestingly, the corruption crackdown isn't in the province where the president of China is from. Not, not, not a, not a t- terrible, uh, terrible coincidence. <laughs> so, um, what? So, as a quant, do you look at other quants? Do you do you see what other people are doing? You mentioned the uh, HFT things. Uh, I look at someone like um, uh, let's use Cliff Asness as an example, who who publishes white paper and he's a pretty big factor um model sort of guy he likes value and momentum what what other quants do you pay attention to or at least find it interesting to read i think the most readable people now from a publishing point of view are the folks at bespoke i think they Mm -hmm. do the 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 most in your face uh, graphically shocking research compelling images that really tell a story yeah uh and i think they do a wonderful job are they the pure quants like me with their databases online no but they are very academic uh they like to talk about what's working on wall street they love to put a historical perspective on stuff um you know we we at our management company have a a weekly free thing called market mail and we have a historian there because it's just fascinating to always look back and Mm -hmm. see where we're at but no you know you never stop learning and that's the fun part of our business. 
I will admit that the, the, the new quants are trade a lot more than I do. Okay, mm-hmm. but the, the, but that's an order flow thing. I'm still kind of an old school uh, behavioral finance fundamental uh, guy, and um, but I I respect anything that works. Mm-hmm. You know, the bespoke guys very much remind me of Jim O'Shaughnessy and the What Works on Wall Street. It's the same. Let's just look in the numbers and see if there's a, a something that's changing that's worth figuring out. Well, whether it's whether it's fundamental valuation or what have you, uh, that that book was really seminal for that approach. Sure, and but I think what everybody has to realize is the market mutates. And I think the way I like to explain it is Bill Walsh used to be a good football coach because he had a system that no one had. And then it stopped working because it went all over the league. You know what I mean? Everybody figured out that West Coast offense. And that's how Wall Street is. Whether it's cash flow, prices, sales, earnings, momentum, surprises, whatever the factors are people are locking in on, it will only work till everybody does it. So what we do is we we figure out what's working and we and as the factors start to break down and get more volatile they get trimmed from our models and then we stress test everything this is the fun part of what navler does at the end of each quarterly earnings season we step in we update the models and we tweak them to lock in on what's working so how often are those models trading how often are you rebalancing and how often are you making major shifts in the holdings well the models are stress tested on a one and three year basis at the end of each earnings season okay mm-hmm. so they're being upgraded right now because we're about to go into the earnings season then the models are run every weekend okay we actually do our research on weekends and uh then the, our our managers have uh, what the models recommend for the next week and we pretty much follow the models so the only time we'll override them if there's merger news or something like that or liquidity events but uh, we fly in instruments, and then, of course, we have optimization models to, to weight everything uh, to get it as smooth as possible. One of the great things about the modeling nowadays is because dividend stocks zig when growth stocks zag, you can mix dividend growth with real, real growth stocks and really reduce the volatility. So our trademark has become really as a good risk-adjusted manager, lower beta, lower max drawdown, lower standard deviation. And we're immensely proud of that. And, um, and then you can further do that by putting a tactical overlay on it if you want. But, but again, we're obsessed with risk control. That starts with a quant. We always have fundamentally superior stocks. I don't have to worry when things are uh, flying around because I know I got good earnings next quarter. And then, but as, as individual stocks become increasingly risky, I will trim them or replace them with safer stocks. And so that's the main reason we're selling. We, we, most of the stuff we sell is actually pretty good. We just mm-hmm. got to sell with something that's better, that will have less volatility, and add to the portfolio. So we're running the portfolios like you'd run a sports team. So if you're on my team and you lose a step because, you know, you're getting old and, you know, I'll throw you off the team. Or if you're young and you party too hard and you lose a step for that, you know, I'll throw you off the team for that. Usually I'll cut your minutes or I'll throw you off the team. Mm-hmm. So that's how optimization works. We're always trying to, to build, get the smoothest, steadiest ride out there, and we're immensely proud of that. So if people want to find out more about uh, Navalier or read any of your research, where's the best place for them to go? Well, there's two sites. I'd recommend Navalier.com, the management company. Sign up for something called Market Mail, which is a free uh, commentary. It comes out every Tuesday. Uh, my newsletter is, uh, is NavalierGrowth.com. We, we keep those business separate. But uh, we have free databases on both sites. And start playing around with our free databases. And, of course, you're welcome to call us anytime you'd like more information. Louie, thank you so much for doing this. Can you stick around a little bit? Of we'll course. keep uh, We'll keep plowing through some of these questions. Uh, if you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things quant, modeling, and stock selections. Be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter, 
at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Louis Navalier. He is a quant and stock picker, managing about $2.5 billion uh, across the United States. L- let's talk a little bit about modeling and, and quants. Uh, what do you think people misunderstand about the idea of using mathematics to evaluate and manage assets? Well, I think the main thing that people should realize a lot of the quants are, are basically doing it on order flow. So they're the nose on the dog versus the tail on the dog. Mm-hmm. And whether they're trying to trade ahead of the Russell realignment, a tracking manager, or whether they're trying to, to, to surf the HFT systems, uh, the high frequency trading systems in that order flow, that's a lot of the hedge funds do that. In my case, it's about getting great risk adjusted performance. My system at this moment says Facebook is safer than Kroger. Mm-hmm. That may not be intuitive to you, but that's what it is. And if you chartered both, you'd see it. So obviously, there's some more buying pressure under Facebook than there is Kroger. We know that Kroger's a lower PE and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's the first step of quant. But then I basically try to I score my stocks on various fundamental criteria that are very, very important because they're influencing all the order flow on Wall Street. And there are quarters where earnings don't work, but I can tell you they're working the last couple quarters. Mm-hmm. And I go into every earnings season locked and loaded with fundamentally superior stocks, and I really enjoy earnings season. So I'm a little old school. You know, um, I do meet a lot of 40 year olds that think I'm nuts for doing fundamentals. Okay. Yeah. And these are gatekeepers <laughs> at big firms. Okay. Um, uh, I have a kid that goes to Stanford that's been highly recruited by some of the hedge funds to build the algorithmic models to uh, basically uh, trade off the HFT systems and adapt. He thinks he he's never taken an accounting class. He wonders why I do fundamentals. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, but uh, you know I'm not one of those quants. I I'm a tax efficient quant. Uh, I hold stocks for over five quarters on average. I get predominantly long term gains. Um, the interesting thing about our models nowadays is dividend growth has invaded all our models because the S&P yields more than treasuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dividends were cut in the first quarter, 84% were in the energy sector. And the companies are still boosting the dividends when others are cutting are an oasis. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've had this huge bond rally. And so dividends look a lot better nowadays. And of course, they are tax efficient by and large. So when we look at uh, the world of dividend stocks, how impactful has the Fed's policy of of zero interest rates been to that sector of the universe? The Fed is causeless. The Fed is not driving the bus anymore. I am extremely frustrated by the Fed. Uh, I don't know why they have to. Like in December, they told us inflation's coming back. The economy's going to be strong, so we're going to have four rate increases. Then in, in March, they said... Oh, uh, economy's not as strong as we thought. Inflation isn't here yet. We're only have two rate increases. And of course, Janet Yellen made it very clear we're going to have one or no rate increases uh, uh, the other week after the FOMC minutes. Um, our Fed, I, I, I personally think they're manipulated by Goldman. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Goldman economists that are chummy with the Fed economists and maybe by getting a the Fed. A revolving door there? Well, obviously, the Fed economists would like to work at Goldman. Okay. Right. <laughs> and you have the you have the New York Fed chief or or the head of research, a former uh, absolutely. Oh, and by the way, Douglas. Janet Janet Yellen, in front of her congressional testimony the other day, 
pointed out that the private economists say this. Okay, so now she's now quoting the private economists. The truth is there's a lot of money around the world. And uh, with negative yields in Germany, Japan, Switzerland, money's going to keep pouring in the United States as right. long as we have higher rates than the rest of the world, as long as our currency is relatively stable, and as long as our economy is relatively decent. And I would make an argument that this strong dollar environment that has been haunting the United States and crushing corporate profits for the multinationals and commodity stocks is going to continue until our rates are as low as everybody else. And our Fed is not driving the bus. You know, under Bernanke, it was incredible. So if people want to find out more about uh, Navalier or read any of your research, where's the best place for them to go? Well, there's two sites. I'd recommend Navalier.com, the management company. Sign up for something called Market Mail, which is a free uh, commentary. It comes out every Tuesday. Uh, my newsletter is, uh, is NavalierGrowth.com. We, we keep those business separate. But uh, we have free databases on both sites. And start playing around with our free databases. And, of course, you're welcome to call us anytime you'd like more information. Louis, thank you so much for doing this. Can you stick around a little bit? Of we'll course. keep uh, we'll keep plowing through some of these questions. Uh, if you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things quant, modeling, and stock selections. Be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Louis. thank you so much for, for doing this. I, I, I said earlier, and I really didn't get a chance to, to elaborate on this in the intro, I've been following you and your methodology and, and how you approach looking at stocks for a long time. It's funny, I'm the old man in the, my office, and we have a lot of young guys, 20-something, 30-something. They said, who's the guest this week? And I, I knew it was coming. I said, Louis Navalier. And they looked at me and said, who? I go, go back, look at some old barons, go pull some of uh... – so do, did you ever do Rukeyser? Am I, am I remembering I that? did it. Uh, Frank Capiello was the mm -hmm. – um, was it, was, the, it was late, late in the uh, yeah in the cycle. But you, you were a fixture on financial television for, for many, many years. And I'm always astonished when the kids don't know who came before them. It's – just search Navalier slash stock picking and, and you'll you'll find out all you need to know. So so before we get to our standard questions, there's so much stuff here that uh, I didn't get through last time. Let let's let's plow through some of this. I I'm fascinated by the idea that undergraduate or graduate in nineteen eighty? I graduated from college in 78, 78, and then I got my MBA in 79, okay, and then so, I started the newsletter in June of 1980. So I'm fascinated that here's a, a guy with an MBA two years from college, deep into one of the worst bear markets in generations, and you say, I know, let, let's go into the stock market. That's where the fun is. What what motivated that? It, it had You had to have... Some inkling you were onto something before saying, "Here's a terrible industry. Let's join that." <laughs> well, first of all, I had been building databases behind the scenes. I was fortunate to get access to mainframe computers um, in we, college from we, Wells Fargo. Where was that? Uh, it was Cal State Hayward, which is now mm -hmm. called Cal State East Bay. But we were fortunate to get access to Wells Fargo's uh, computers. So I'm old. You know, I had a slide rule. We used to punch cards. Anyway. So we, I figured out what was working, and then I built my own databases, and every stock was a card going through a TI programmable calculator. Right. 
So every weekend I would get Barron's and I'd update everything and key it in and it, I had my own database. But in 78, 79, and in the first few months, 1980, you had a big small cap rally and then that bubble burst. Mm -hmm. But I knew there were anomalies on Wall Street. I could see them in small cap. And so I started in small cap assuming that was the least efficient place. In that, fact, that's, that's how I first came to know you is your rep was – Hey, this is a great small cap stock picker. Correct. And then my first letter was uh, OTC Insight, later renamed MPT Review. It's now called Emerging Growth. The publishers like to rename us. But the um, that's how it all evolved. And then this guy Holbert picked me up and said nice things about me, and that helped my career. And uh, and so I, publishing is still a big thing. You know, we're very popular in the, in the brokerage world. Mm -hmm. um, the way it works is um, if a stock goes up, it's their idea. If it goes down, it's my idea. Of so, course. There's a lot of folks out there that are, are trading off our portfolios. And um, it's somewhat stressful because we have a bit of a wake nowadays. So when we make a recommendation, there's a little blip on the stock. Uh -huh. And I'll be honest with you, Zach's has picked me up 85% of the time. So there's another blip. So this becomes a, an issue. But, um, you know, we do influence markets, but markets are also very fragile. So it's funny. I, I spent the first half of my career on the sell side. And, and what you described right out of the broker handbook hey you know anything anybody else suggests if it doesn't work out it's that guy but if it does work out i'm the genius who brought it to you so that that is i think page one that's correct and i meet a lot of i meet clients that think i'm running their money and then i can't find them on our system because the their brokers running it right but the broker pays for my newsletter so i don't argue okay <laughs> and uh so uh but um you how know, many different? How many different? You have a run of different newsletters, don't oh you? Oh gosh, I think we have six now. But um, what do they typically cost for a year? Well, we start everybody in blue chip growth, which is our flagship, mm -hmm. uh, and um, I think that's two forty nine a year. And then uh, emerging growth is a little bit more. That's more small cap. Uh, then we uh, have something called ultimate growth, where if you, we trade stocks a whole about four to five months, more for the pensions. Um, and then if you get all three, you get ultimate growth. And now we have a family trust service, which follows my wife's, my mother-in-law's money, a little more conservative than blue chip, higher dividend yield, buy and dip, sell in the strength. Uh, that's uh, kind of plays the range of the stocks. And then we have a new dividend uh, service. You know, I should talk to you about, mention something. You know, we have our stock grader. We're immensely proud of it. We wrote a book on this. What's that's, the name of the book? Uh, the little book that makes you rich with oh, John Wiley. Yep. Yeah. And, um, that introduced our stock grader, and that's all free in the public domain. We have a, a dividend grader service up there, and our dividend grader, believe it or not, has actually beaten our stock grader in the last 10 years, but mm -hmm. barely. Now, this locks in on dividend growth, not high dividend, dividend growth. Right. And when we merge the A-rated stocks in dividend grader with the A-rated stocks in stock grader, the rich results are incredible. But I only can find three to four stocks a month. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually at the stage of my life where I'm running out of capacity. I'm running out of places to put the money. And so we have very concentrated portfolios nowadays. And I find that, you know, I can do better with an 18-stock portfolio than I can with a 37-stock portfolio. Right. The market more is so risk, more volatility, but better performance. Yeah, the market is shockingly narrow right now. Well, you, it's interesting you say risk, but my 18-stock portfolio is safer than the 37 because it's the putting the dividend versus the growth stocks, and they're all low-risk stocks, but they move differently. Mm -hmm. So as long as we optimize them properly, but you're ready. You're right. If I had an extraordinary event or if I laid an egg in one of them, I, I, I probably Less that would happen. Less diversification implies lower potential expected returns, more drawdowns. Uh, people, people seem to misuse the term volatility for risk. Uh, what I mean is 
hey, we know what your expected returns are based on these qualif- these characteristics of the holdings. What are the odds that we're not going to get those returns in any one year? What are the odds that we're going to have an outsized drawdown? That That's the loose definition of, of, of risk I like to Correct. use. Correct. And we can slice, you know, we know we have beta, max drawdown, standard deviation, we have unsystematic, we have all kinds of different ways to slice it. But the bottom line is, I'm actually safer today on 18 stocks than I'm on about 37. Mm-hmm. And I'm, uh, and uh, but that's the function of the optimization models, blending the dividend growth with the the the, uh, the growth stocks. But I, we really enjoy what we do. We see it our own products. We're one of the few managers that are willing to work for 10 percent of profits billable annually, no fixed fee. Uh, and say that again. Let's let's go over that. So it's not two and twenty, and it's not a straight one percent. It's we won't charge anything, and we'll we'll just take ten percent of the profits. Net of all costs. Advisor, brokerage firm, everything. It's SEC Rule 205 3. The client must say they have a 2 million liquid net worth. Right. As long as they say they have that, we're willing to run their money for 10% of profits billable annually or a reasonable fixed fee. We have either or. Mm-hmm. So we really enjoy what we do. Uh, our firm is increasingly being run more and more like a family office because we're very fortunate. And uh, I think I married well and I sold some business at the right time. But the the bottom line, we love what we do. We heavily invest in what we do. We're not as big as a Ron Barron or anybody like that, right. but we really enjoy what we do. And that gets reflected in, in, in the business. So so let's go back to you launching a newsletter right out of, of grad school. What was the mood like on Wall Street in, in the early 1980s? That that had to be, you know, we, we just had a double dip recession, 80 and 82. Inflation was... Teenage numbers, the the 10-year bond, I think, was yielding 16%. Who the hell wants stocks? Well, that was interesting. I was in San Francisco at the time, Mm -hmm. and San Francisco was much less stressed out than um, New York. New York. Uh, Because, you know, it's kind of law-law land out there. Not anymore. I think San Francisco is more stressed out than New York these days. (laughs) Well, that's The fights over Google buses, apartment rents, everything has gone on. It's very stressful stepping over homeless people everywhere. But the... um, the um, uh, but to, to make a long story short, the um, this is at the end of the Volcker era. And but by the way, the homeless in California was Giuliani's gift from New York to California. Oh, that was that was our gift. You to know, the West it's, Coast. Uh, they mean well, but uh, it is a, there, there's a, quite a few of them out there. Um, uh, L.A., San Diego, the whole West Coast, all, all of California's. As a New Yorker who has seen the number of homeless tick up recently. Mm-hmm. You know, if you remember in the 70s and 80s, homelessness in New York was was terrible. Yes, yes. That all changed once we started treating it like a um, a, a mental health issue and not um, as a you have the right to sleep in the park. And it's ticked up uh, since Bloomberg left the mayorality. It, it's ticked up a little bit. And I'm shocked every time I go to California well, by the sheer numbers. I have a, a good friend, Bruce, uh, impeccable dresser, beautiful wife. Um, very successful gentleman. Um, in the eighties, he had a slight crack cocaine problem. We always mm-hmm. wonder what was wrong with Bruce. He was sitting in the tenderloin, and, and uh, somebody bit his finger off. Nice, a, a human. Uh, yeah, it's. I'm from the Bay Area. It's it's shocking to see people eat pigeons and things. So it's uh, eat something pigeons. I don't want to see wow. ever again. Do you know what I mean? It's, and, and yet. California is not responding to this. California is a fascinating place. You know, 20% of Californians don't have bank accounts. There's this huge cash economy there. Okay? Really? So, well, the other thing Is theory- it true 20% of the drivers out there don't have insurance? Well, it's... Might uh, be the same group. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's uh, 
if you went to California DMV, they would say, don't blame us. They had Schwarzenegger's picture there because of the budget cuts. But the ski resorts got extra uh, traffic because they had the mandatory layoffs. You know, I have uh, um, the mandatory uh, leave in California when they had budget problems. I have California employees Mm -hmm. because I'm uh, on – I have some people who live in Truckee that work for me. You're right near the border. And I remember a few years ago, I, I said, I'm sorry about your paycheck. And this, well, what happened? Because they got less money. Well, California was broke, so they had more withholding taxes. They just withheld more, <laughs> figure we'll borrow it from the future. And of course, you didn't file your tax return in time you got an IOU. But the, they are benefiting from the, the new tech boom now, and I think they're okay. But going back to the cash economy that dominates uh, Silicon Valley and a lot of other places and Los Angeles, you know, there is a theory that maybe the check cashing stores are more efficient than the banks. But the truth of the matter it. is there's a, there is a cash economy there, uh-huh. and uh, they're very innovative, and it is what it is. That, that has to be a large chunk of illegal immigrants, housekeepers, gardeners, whatever, who are getting paid in cash and don't show up on the balance sheets anywhere, and that's uh, that part of the country. It's a great country, and uh, <laughs> what, what can I say? And, um, you know, I, and, you know, I'm originally from Berkeley, and, you know, when you're in the pot business in Berkeley— you have to be nonprofit because you're doing this for the good of mankind. Okay. Right. And they did arrest one of the Berkeley pot growers because he made too much money one year. They arrested him for capitalism. Okay. That's pretty hilarious. It's, yeah. uh, so now that we have states like Colorado and Oregon and uh, another two dozen states about to make marijuana, not just medical marijuana, but recreational marijuana fully legal, is that going to become an investable thesis anytime soon? No, because you can't uh, you can't um, can't, bank. can't cash the money. Can't bank. So anytime you see a marijuana investment, unless it's an LED lighting to make the the plants grow faster, mm-hmm. or hydroponics or some mechanical thing behind the scenes, I would invest in it. Okay, and that's because the federal law on on banking doesn't allow them to uh, to actually put money in banking. Correct. Accounts. And what's happened in Vegas? Because uh, unfortunately, uh, there are some people in Nevada that are slightly stoned. Okay. Um, <laughs> in Vegas, it's all gone to the the e-cigarettes, right? Because they can't trace it. Uh, so, what, what do you mean the money has gone to e-cigarettes? In other words, they're selling e-cigs as well as they're they're getting their marijuana through the e-cigarettes, and uh. they can't trace it. Well, if you smoked it or ate it, they could apparently trace it better. So the marijuana industry in uh, Vegas has collapsed. Now, Vegas is a big LDS area. I mean, is it is it legal? Is marijuana, is it uh, recreational or medical in, I, in You know, that's Nevada? a good question, but it's at every... Because ski- everything is legal it's, in Vegas, it's, in it's, it's, it's at every ski slope I've ever been to, so, <laughs> even in Utah. So uh, it is a performance-enhancing drug. Uh, uh, yeah. Apparently. By the way, Utah had an interesting solution to the their homeless problem, is they said... We're spending X dollars a year on each individual homeless person. If we can spend less and solve the problem, we'll entertain any solution. And and the solution someone came up with was give them inexpensive apartments, pay for it. This way they get their meds, they have access to their whatever. And so far, Utah seems to have come up with the only um, solution that seems to be working. California should should take a look at what their... Uh, what they're doing, and maybe even save some money along the way. Yeah, you know, I, I go to some states that are v- very interesting, like uh, Alabama's very church-oriented. You have to, you mm-hmm. know, Wednesday night's church night. You better not, they better not catch you out going for dinner on Wednesday. Uh, for, I, for some reason, I'm in Alabama a lot. Uh, obviously, uh, Utah's very LDS. Nevada's very LDS as, as well. Um, so I suspect— LDS as in— The La- Latter-day Saints. Oh, okay. You know, 
Mitt I thought Rom- you were suggesting liberal Democratic no, no, socialists, no, 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 no. and I'm like, I would think that's more California <laughs> than Utah. So uh, the, uh, Mormons, LDS. I, I and- suspect there's a bit of a church influence going on in uh, Utah too. I, I would be shocked if there isn't. Um, so we probably, you know, that I don't know if that model will work everywhere, but we have to see how strong it's coming from the church versus mm-hmm. uh, somebody else. But kudos to them for, you know, uh, being a little creative and thinking outside the box and not just spending yeah. a re- you can't just throw money at problems that doesn't solve them one thing i can tell you is in south florida where i happen to live we have all the rehab places mm-hmm. and we have a lot of the second steps and you go there and it's funny when i fly back to florida there are a lot of them are flying with me <laughs> you know? front of the front of the plane they book them in the because it's very expensive rehab <laughs> And you know they're all you know getting all their little drinks so they have one last hit. You know most of them are, are opiates. You know Percocet uh-huh. and, and Oxycontin and, and all the legal drugs or whatever El Chapo was selling. I don't, I don't you know? think you could get Percocet. Yeah, I guess you could get Percocet. I had my wisdom teeth out between college and grad school, and um, uh, I, I, they they gave me a prescription of Percodan. I, I call that the best month of my life. Yeah, yeah. But at the end of the month, you're done. You're done. There was no. Uh, that seems to have changed these days. Yeah, and it's a serious problem. We have a, a good friend, we'll go on names, who had a problem for four years with this. He had, really? uh, he thought he had teeth problems, but he had a little aneurysm in his uh, head, and they had to open his head. In fact, uh, Ben Carson almost cut on him. He, uh, ben was his second choice. And uh, so they got, they deal with his aneurysm, but he apparently liked Oxycontin for a while. And yeah. so he's back, he's fine. We're all reaching out to him to help him, and he's fine. He's Mentally, he's sharp as can be. But it's it's uh, it's a happy place apparently. <laughs> yeah, apparently, <laughs> you know I don't mind the occasional mood altering drink or what have yeah. you. But it's not it's a place to visit for vacation. It's not a place to live in on a permanent basis. But uh, that's why we have to watch all our trading desks, okay? That, because <laughs> that's a place to visit and not a place to. Uh, so so let's go back to 1980 when you're coming out of grad school and launching the newsletters. Uh, were you working in New York? Were you aware of the mood of Wall Street, or sure. did that? So, so how did that affect the way you looked at the decision to let's launch a business right into the teeth? Of well, I, I was thinking of moving here, and I uh, prayed around here, and then uh, I, of course I had to get used to the weather. It was pretty hot when I was running around here, but the um, I decided to to work for myself, and um, I was originally sponsored by a little firm called Van Casper in San Francisco, oh, which sure. is part of Wells Fargo, and um, so all my managed accounts were going through there. And then, uh, then uh, I went in, started to work with other people and platforms, and um, we just want to take care of people and treat everybody like we treat ourselves, and. Um, you know, in fact, I just had my SEC DOL audit, um, Department of Labor audit, and uh, I was. They walk into a gross shop and they saw how much dividend management a lot of our clients had, and uh, so I think they even. Well, I can't say that he was happy, but I was happy with the with the with the audit. It was not as long as I thought, and uh, and they brought the DOL lawyer there on loan to make sure that we do suitability, and mm-hmm. we put. You know, we put everybody gets a mix that's suitable for them versus some canned mix. You know, I think mm-hmm. if they caught any of us, you know, treating everybody, you know, putting the round client in the round slot and square, they don't like that. You have to literally listen to people, do what they want, and uh, dial it in and change it as their needs change. So we're, we're pretty proud of what we've done, and our private client group here in New York is growing rapidly because we're trying, taking care of people. So what was your take on the whole um, suitability versus fiduciary standard 
that the DOL rules change. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or I have no problem with it. I, I think uh, I, I think the real problem is the the conflicts we have out there. So let, mm-hmm. I don't have a conflict because we have either a low institutional fee or that incentive fee. But what's happened to our business? And I'll pick on my uh, I guess I'll pick on my daughter. So my daughter's a mutual fund wholesaler. Mm-hmm. She has a four thousand dollar month budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the guy she married used to give her fund business because he was pr- wanted to show he loved her. Okay. Okay. Now that he's her husband, he just does eye shares because at his firm he gets an extra fifty basis points to eye shares over funds. Uh huh. One of the conflicts we that's emerged in our business is the ETF wholesalers have more money than the fund wholesalers. Mm-hmm. And so there are what we call a pay-to-play system out there. Sure. Um, uh, and a lot of it's masked with intelligence that the firms say, well, in exchange for this money, we'll, we'll make you work more efficiently and tell you where you should go. Okay. So I don't pay-to-play anywhere. So this isn't my problem, but this is what the industry is dealing with. And a lot of people don't realize that um, when the ETFs are rebalanced every 90 days, that it's that that if that ETF controls the specialist, the ETF might actually profit on it. So it's kind of like the bond business. So in the bond world, everybody will always give you everything with no no fees, no transactions, because all the money's in the spread. People don't realize how big the spreads are in ETFs. Or or it's already a householding and they're charging a markup. I, I used to have this discussion with people who would say, I don't understand who's paying bond managers, my guy at fill-in-the-blank wirehouse doesn't charge me for bonds. And I would always laugh and say, let me explain to you. There is no free lunch. Of course you're being charged. It's just not transparent or disclosed. You're not seeing. Either it's stuff. It's house inventory that they're selling to you as a markup, in which case they don't have to show it, or there's you could drive a truck through that spread and they own it on one side and they're selling it to you on the other. That's correct. And so uh, what's happened is the asset gatherers on Wall Street, which dominate our business, are very good gathering assets, convincing everybody they have low fees, but they, people may not realize they make money on securities lending, which is legit. Right. They make money on, can make money on market making for the ETF uh, right. through their specialist affiliate, which is legit if they don't hose them too much. But that's just so, a little bit of hosing. Is that, well, that. this is what, so let's take some of the big robo programs. Mm-hmm. The robo programs, there are no management fees. That's correct. But if you read like page 14 of the disclosure of one of them, each ETF pays a quarter million a year to be in there. Well, why would you pay a quarter million a year if you're hardly getting any fees? Well, because your ETF is rebalanced every 90 days, and the specialist affiliate could make a lot of money, especially if it's an equally weighted ETF. And, and there's an internal expense ratio built in. Correct, you don't have correct. to pay a fee to buy correct. it. It's not like a, the old days of C shares. The, the fee is, is built in. You know, if you, if you look at a number of custodians, there's a run of ETFs that they'll allow you to trade at no charge. And it's like, well, why is that? Because they have relationships when they're bo- either constructing or deconstructing the individual shares and, and there's money to be made. They're happy just to have it there in-house. And, you know, it's funny. I go to Europe and they do not like ETFs. The Bank mm-hmm. of England told them not to do it. I have a friend that used to arbitrage uh, between London and New York, went to jail for three years. Mr. Spister got him. And they're still arbing in, in Europe right now. Okay. Because there's a difference between the ETF and, and its holdings. Correct. So in the U.S., what's supposed to keep – those arbitrageurs are supposed to keep the price between the NAV and the ETF mm. identical. And the way they do it is, hey, here's a market solution to not allowing these things to get out of whack. 
the financial incentive allows people to trade that and and bring them into sync. Right, and I I don't mean to be too negative, but I unfortunately the SEC is behind. I can tell you what the SEC did wrong. When we had first off, when they got rid of the twelve B one fees on mutual funds, okay, mm -hmm. the, the firms figured out how to get paid even more, okay, right. So actually, the SEC caused this conundrum to exist. And when we had the flash crash in two thousand ten, that five minute period. The SEC came in and broke every trade where somebody lost more than forty uh, percent. Mm -hmm. So they basically told every specialist you can steal money until it hits forty percent, <laughs> and that's exactly what you saw on August twenty fourth of two thousand fifteen. Okay, the circuit breakers hit. They couldn't price the stocks. BNY Mellon had a little pricing issue, and uh, but there were ETF orders out there, and everybody looked at each other and they dropped a bid and picked everybody off thirty two to thirty five percent. But they didn't pick off anybody. They picked off DVY, that iShares five-star ETF. Right. They picked off Guggenheim S&P Equal. They picked off a bunch of Vanguard Equal ETFs. And that's why the SEC did a scathing report, like, what in the hell is going on? And if I was the SEC and implementing this DOL thing, I would, I would probably tell the ETF world, uh, you better behave, okay? Uh, because the, there's just, the spreads are too wide. People, ETFs do not trade in net asset value, okay? And this is a huge problem. And I have my own issues with Morningstar. Morningstar will show in August of 2015, August 24th, that that month that the DVY only had a one basis point trade risk. But for some reason, it had a 53.3% range intraday, okay? So I would argue that Morningstar's not doing their math right, mm -hmm. okay? Because you can look at a chart, like on Bloomberg, and you see the risk. And then you look at Morningstar, where's the risk? So there's a lot of things that need to be cleaned up, and um, this could be fixed really fast. But um, right now, those folks that run the exchanges are are laughing at us, and every time there's a, an extraordinary event, they're going to make a lot of money. Huh. That that that's really um, an interesting take. I can't say I I disagree with the whole lot of that. So I want to get to our favorite few questions um, before they kick us out of here. But there are so many things I I skip through before Let, let's talk about geopolitical risk brexit u.s elections does any of that stuff matter to you you think oh, sure. about that sure i how, mean how I, do you model for that sort of stuff well we have already seen this incredible rally in europe because they briefly thought that britain might stay okay because uh, the the tragic assassination of the member of parliament and it kind of swung the polls now the polls are, are going the other way and they're all on pins and needles. So there's a lot of cash on the sidelines ready to pour in if Britain stays. If Britain leaves, uh, the dollar will have this incredible rally. Mm -hmm. It will pinch uh, S&P earnings for the multinationals, commodities even more. It has profound ramifications. But if you look at the electric around the world, people seem to be a little ticked off. Nationalism is on its way back. and We've we, seen that everywhere, here we, and Even overseas. here, even here. So... We'll see what happens. I have Brits that work for me, and uh, they've told me they all they that people know are, are voting to leave. But uh, you know, it's it's um, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, this this also happened in Canada, and, and then they told the Quebecers how much they lo love right. each other. So maybe the folks in Brussels need to tell Britain how much they love them. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of overseas, you you run models both U.S. and and international. When we look at the world of either value or small cap, we see those factors outperform even more overseas than they do in the U.S. At least developed ex-U.S. 
uh, when you create a model for overseas stocks, do you do anything differently, or is it the same factors that you're applying, just tweaking them somewhat in well, a different balance? Well, first of all, we have a our hottest product this year is an emerging market product, and we're getting a lot of money in it. But I have to tell you, um, we've been pretty good on currencies. And the key is when you invest internationally, you better not get the currency wrong. And to demonstrate it, I'll give you an example where I made a mistake. Many years ago, I had the the Coca Cola bottle in Mexico mm -hmm. because the I that. the, the Coca Cola bottle is uh, well, the average Mexican drinks sixty gallons of soft drink a year. By the way, it's better down there than it is here. It's because it's real cane sugar, yeah, exactly. not high fructose corn syrup. And um, anytime I go to the islands, I pick up, I correct, buy correct. Uh, Coca Cola. It's delicious. So it's a boom, it was a booming business, and I think the 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 bottle the distributor. And before I forget, I'm sorry to interrupt. Before I forget, if you go into certain gourmet supermarkets in New York like Whole Foods, you can buy a four-pack of 10-ounce glass bottle Mexican Coke, excellent. which is made with cane sugar, not high fructose corn excellent. syrup. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Sorry for interrupting. But no, anyway, so booming business. And um, But if you drink 60 gallons of soft drink a year, as the average Mexican does, you might get diabetes. Right. So I, at that time, I had Nova Nordis, a diabetes company. So I said, I am a great portfolio manager. I have this great bottler. And I have the diabetes company, and I have eliminated risk. Okay, one zigs, one zigs. Perfectly hedged for diabetes. Got Until it. the Mexican peso went the wrong way, ah, and, the collapse, and my trade sure. came and went. So the moral of the story is: when you invest internationally, don't get the currency wrong. And um, you do know, do you hedge uh, currency when no, you invest internationally? No, we don't. And uh, and uh, you can see how wild it is right now. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, there are countries that have, that are more commodity oriented. New Zealand, Australia, sure. Canada that get hurt when their commodities go down. There's political risk, like there was in Russia when they invaded Ukraine. Venezuela, uh, look what's going on. Oh, Venezuela! I, I have well, first of all, a lot of the middle class Venezuela live with me in Florida now. They're little, they live in Weston, but the uh, no, it, it, to say it's a tragedy, there's got to be a revolt there. It's, it's, it's coming. You could see it it's coming. Here. It's got to be. I By mean, the time this broadcast, it'll probably be over. Yeah, but uh, it's you know no electricity. It's it's just no food. They're it's, raiding the school cafeterias for food because yeah, people don't have any. The food. schools, everything's breaking down. It's truly. And then of course the oil's predominantly heavy sour crude. No one wants. Mm -hmm. The refinery blew up, and the only way they can sell that stuff is to refine it. You know that that's why Saudi and Kuwait have their own refineries, right? Because no one wants their heavy sour stuff unless they refine it. Anyway. Uh, it's just uh, you got to get the currency right, and uh, emerging markets. Uh, going back to risk, uh, do balance out a big diversified portfolio, and are getting a bigger share because they're zigging when other things zag. Right. So there, the models are are calling for more of that right now. So let's um that that's really interesting. Let's let's go with the last question before I get to my favorites, which is how different is managing other people's money from writing a newsletter. It's not that different. You know, it's funny. The SEC will never let us clone a newsletter for management. So they wow. never quite match, okay? Why is that? You can't you can't just turn it into a uh, an ETF or something like that? C correct. Um well there's it's it's obviously regulatory rulings, but um there was a, a manager near me in Jupiter, Florida, that was cloning his newsletter, and he got fined two point three million. So we just noticed that. Okay, so what I do? I didn't even know there was such a rule. Because the, the, you're not the newsletter is not uh, not not um, uh, per, uh, permitted marketing material. So if I ever oh, had okay. a I newsletter 
touchy my management material, I'm really bad. Okay, uh-huh. so that is why the management is headquartered in Reno, Nevada, I got and you. publishing's in Rockville, Maryland. We've tried to separate. Them, Never the twain okay? shall meet. Correct, and so, but the truth of the matter is, there's obviously a tremendous overlap. We don't have we have different names, so large cap might overlap my blue chip letter, but it might have a 80 percent overlap. But uh, they don't match, and they have different names. I have a different managers on it, and so we try to we do try to differentiate it. But in the end, the, the clients come to us for that good risk adjusted performance. What the way our system really works is we keep sixty percent in conservative stocks, thirty percent moderately aggressive, ten percent aggressive, and as things get more volatile, we start to trim or sell outright. And a lot of people will take the newsletters and they'll try it and they forget to trim. Right. And they come to us when markets are narrow. So this is a great time for our business because the markets aren't easy and uh, it is very narrow and they really want our help with the risk controls. And then we have to dial in on taxes. If it's a pension, we might chase more of our A-rated stocks. If it's a, if it's a tax-efficient account, we might buy A's or B's. Or if they're in a high-tax state, we might put them in a growing fund. But we always have to blend in the dividend management because it zigs when the other stuff zags, um, the growth stock zag. And and it's really about dialing in and getting everybody as smooth as possible. And, of course, as people get older, they want more income, and we can make that transition very easily. So uh, we, we're really proud of our private client group, and we enjoy working with people. and um, And we treat everybody like family. That's what we try to do. All right, so let's jump into our, our standard questions. We ask all our guests, and let's start right with uh, mentors. Who were some of the early mentors? Who influenced your thought process about investing? Professor Sharp at Stanford wrote a little book that was uh, religious reading to me, very short. Um, what was the name of Sharp's book? I have no idea. It was read, and it had all the formulas in there I needed. And this is Nobel laureate uh, yes, Bill Sharp. Yes, yes, sure he's in his nineties now. Uh, who, who was the advisor for Financial Engines, which is yes. now running about one hundred and fifty billion. Financial Engines very very successful. I had the honor of meeting Harry Markowitz in Tahoe once, and Harry's a, a great guy. Uh, one of my professors, Arnold Langson, who's in his nineties now, was buddies with Harry and likes to call Bill Sharp uh, every now and then, but. Uh, you know, those were the the people that gave me the formulas, and I just set out to document it. Um, there are efficiently priced stocks out there, and mm-hmm. then there are things that are not efficiently priced. So, what I don't care how how many anomalies there, are, I just want to find them. And basically, what I'm saying a lot of the market is efficient now, whether that's ETFs or indexing. But uh, I just care about the inefficient ones. And those are the ones that Russell's going to be adding their indices popping. Those are the ones that are reacting positively to their earnings or growing dividends. But it is shockingly narrow. Our dividend grader, you got to be in the top 11%. Our stock grader, you got to be in the top 9%. That's how tight the markets are yeah. at this time. So those are those are academic mentors. How about investors? What specific investors have uh, affected the way you think? Uh, James Stoward is at... Um, at uh, American Century was obviously very influential. He was one of the original um, James Stalwart Stowers Stowers. Uh, he was one of the original um, earnings momentum guys. He was uh, American Century in Kansas City. Uh, he was buying research from B.J. Young in San Francisco. I remember meeting those guys. See, I did all this pre-computers. Okay, mm-hmm. I did it on calculators, and then obviously I I tried to stay on the head of automation and um, the. Um, those guys were uh, we watched. Uh, we uh, we also watched the Peter Lynch's of the world. Uh, um, I think Peter Lynch. Uh, you know, I know he told a story and all that stuff, but uh, there was a there was a lot of math there. In fact, I did a, when I was a, uh, pretty young. I did a report for Fidelity 
on my quant stuff. So, so Peter Lynch is a clo- closet quant, in other words. Well, he had some other people there that there was a guy named Rich Fenton that seemed to be more of a, a quant, and um, but the, he was a good mentor for that whole team at Fidelity, and. Um, but you know, it's you. You get to a size where you can only manage so much money, and Fidelity's at that size. And but has, remember, has been for a long time. Remember, <laughs> Ned, uh, uh, the the Rand Fidelity was a pretty Ned good Johnson. Man- Ned was a pretty good manager. Now himself. it's Abigail Johnson. Yeah. His daughter's yeah. running it. Ned Johnson was running a, a fund back in the early yeah, days. Yeah, pre Peter Lynch, it was pretty successful too. Huh. So you mentioned Bill Sharp's book. What other books have been influential? After that, it was just IBD and uh, staying on the cutting edge. I don't agree with uh, how to exit, like uh, uh, IBD says. I I wouldn't set a stop at seven percent or anything. Right. But uh, you're guaranteed to get taken out of stocks that are going much of course, higher of course. with it, that number. In fact, you know, because of our volatility last August, you know, the New York Stock Exchange banned physical stops and GTCs for two months, and that's mm-hmm. how bad it was. But, yeah, you never show anybody your order. You never show them your cards. But, I, I learned that early in my career. Yeah. If you put a stop out there, somehow a specialist will get the price there, take it, and then move it away. Correct. And uh, I have three good ex-traders that work for me. They aren't trading now. They try to educate everybody. But um, but the uh, the truth of the matter is is I, I, the markets are always mutating and you just got to stay on top of it. And I don't like any theme that doesn't make money. Uh, I, uh, I I do like them when they make the 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 transition from negative to positive earnings. If I can time it that quarter, I like that because it's explosive. But uh, most of the time, the, the my, change from negative to, to positive, positive earnings. I like that. But most of my stocks What's are like? most of my stocks are going in a very smooth, steady manner. There's relentless buying pressure and buybacks under the surface. There's growing dividends. And so I jump on them as long as I can ride them, and they're safe. And then eventually they get more erratic for whatever reason. Margins are under compression, or buybacks are slowing down, or the sector's going out of favor. I had this experience last year. You know, uh, I had Gilead, um, which is uh, the hepatitis C pill. Uh, I I would get grief on that because Hillary said the pill's too expensive, and I would argue it's a cure for hepatitis. It's cheaper than dying a painful death in the hospital. (laughs) So leave Gilead alone. (laughs) <laughs> to say the okay. just to just to clarify, this is cheaper than dying a long, slow, painful death in a hospital. Yes, yes. And right, so that, I, check that box okay. off. Okay. And then, uh, but uh, but you know, they start to hit the biotech funds. They start to hit the pharma funds because Hillary was picking on the healthcare stocks. You know, I had to sell allergen. Mm-hmm. I said Hillary's not going to mess with allergen. It's Botox. Okay. You know, and uh, we're very familiar with Botox in South Florida. You can see who has it because they're uh, they're all no drool- they're drooling at the cocktail parties. <laughs> the, the, the dentists do Botox in South Florida mandatory. At least I think that's the thing. You have to tell them not to do Botox. Okay, uh, if you don't want it, you have to opt out. Yes, yes. <laughs> but um, the um, anyway, to make a long story short, you know there are sectors that get hit because they're in a big basket. You know they do throw the baby out with the bathwater. When we had right. the big energy meltdown. You know, he said, "Well, I, I don't, know. I don't know if they'll hit the terminals, the pipelines, and the frackers." Yeah, they hit across the board. Yeah, yeah. And, well, then the earnings would come out, and one side would have earnings, others. But then it was just too long, and then they took everything out. I remember there was one LED lighting company that was in an energy ETF, so they took it out because it was in the wrong ETF. Okay, because it made LED lighting. Okay? We, we see all sorts of uh, people confuse symbols. News comes out, and a similar symbol gets whacked. Yeah. I mean, the, the behavioral side of it is really what, quite, what I, uh, quite amazing. What I like, how is no one can read the second sentence, okay? Which Every, is? Everybody just reads the headline, and, and the, you trade off the headline. And and then you can have a correction, and no one cares. <laughs> no one's programmed to trade off corrections, to my knowledge, yet. 
That, that's amazing. So you mentioned a lot of the things that have changed since you joined the industry. What do you think is the most significant changes? What If you had to pick one thing, what, what has had the greatest impact on investing? Decimalization. Really? Yes. So going from teenies and quarters and eighths to decimalization, uh, that, that changed the research equation, didn't it? Uh, yes. I miss the old system. I preferred the old system. I preferred getting on NASDAQ level three, mm -hmm. calling, market, I started. calling market makers, cleaning out their inventory, accumulating stocks, never moving them. Today, I deal with an algorithm. I right. deal with an anonymous uh, high-frequency trading system, and I don't like it. We calculate something called unsystematic risk, the risk we can't diversify away. In large-cap stocks, it's about 0.6% of trade. Really? In mid-cap stocks, it's 1.8%. In small it's... cap, it's still running almost 600 basis points of trade. Wow. ETFs last August were 450, 458. Now they're 357. Basis points of, so about 3.5% the, the, This is risk. unsystematic risk. The static, the fudge factor, how much they might pick you off if you're careless with your order. Right. And so, not, so when we optimize a portfolio, we have to get the lowest beta possible. Mm -hmm. we have to get the uh, unsystematic risk down and we get the alpha as high as possible and there's ways to optimize. But the unsystematic risk exploded when they decimalized the market. I like the old system. The fact that Europe Europe is gone in August, the fact that most of my sure. friends here in New York are gone in the second half of August. Right. I hate August. I just hate it, okay? Now, in a presidential election year, often it's better because we're all being distracted by the conventions. Right. Apparently, Which are in July this year. Correct, but the the I think the rhetoric will be pretty hot and heavy in the summer. I personally, as as long as uh, Trump and Hillary are sucking up to people, that's good. I'm waiting for them to start sucking up to people. Okay, normally we rally going to presidential election year because of the suck up factor. It lifts consumer confidence, rubs off investor confidence. But uh, I know this is not a conventional election year, but I would hope that they would make August a little smoother this time. I know it'll be entertaining as as, as can be, but it's uh, I would like to see a little suck up with the uh, with the attacks. I, I, I love that. Um, our last two questions. So, if a, a millennium or a millennial or some recent college graduate came to you and said, "Louis, I'm thinking about a career in finance," what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I'll tell you the same thing I told my son. Uh, you better take a psychology class because the market is a manic crowd. And um, and uh, uh, that is what behavioral finance is. Uh, we're studying crowds and we're locking in on what they like. And uh, crowd movement will last for m several months. And so we want to lock in on it, if not years. Second thing is better take a, an accounting class. Uh, what, if you have any criticism of all the CFAs out there, they're all trained to track. They're all trained to, uh, you know, hug these benchmarks, throw out a few dogs if they want to try to beat it. And everybody's forgotten about accounting, okay? And they better learn finance. Um, I, I, there's the number of investors out there that have no idea what a P ratio is or, you know, it, it's incredible. You know, we deal with this because we have Tesla in Reno. You know, they're building the, the battery mm -hmm. plant and uh, I deal with it in California and and they're all they're all in la la land. They, I don't think they have any idea of the risk they're incurring with that stock right now. Huh. Quite fascinating. And the last question: What is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew when you started out in 1980? Well, that's a that's a very good point. You know, 
you have to read the credit markets because the credit markets influence the stock market. But I think it's the credit market meltdown in 2008 that's the most profound. Mm -hmm. um, what happened on Wall Street is it started to leverage debt. And it, let, let, I'll, this is a good closing point. I obviously live in South Florida. Bernie was up the street. Six mm -hmm. homes south of me was a guy named Tom Petter. Still $3.8 billion fake in commercial paper. My neighbors. Was, Bernie is in Bernie Madoff. Bernie is up the we, street. I thought we were talking Bernie uh, Sanders. No, 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 no. Bernie Madoff was up the up street. Up the street. Okay, sure. And then um, Tom Petters was six home south of me, still $3.8 billion, fake and commercial pay for 18 years. I belong to a golf club where the founder of this big fancy fund of funds only recommended Bernie and, and Petters. That so worked out well. Well, he has no standard deviation because everybody's <laughs> lost their money, and there is some upside because the attorney generals recover. But my neighbors got wiped out more by leverage debt. Um, really? Things like the Falcons. More than, more than the Madoffs of the Correct. world. Correct. Uh, well, might be the club I belong to. But the, the bottom line <laughs> is the uh, they were leveraged in AA-rated munis, 8 to 1, the Falcon funds. Oh, my goodness. And uh, they lost 97% of their money. This is part of the credit default swap problem and uh, collapsing. And um, so anytime I see leverage debt, I freak out, okay? Right. And I, I see Good a little- response. I see a little now two to one. Obviously, we had the SIV problem. That was 10 to one. That was our bet on the yield curve. That's what sunk uh, Bear Stearns and Lehman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the thing that shocks me to this day is the guy that led the Falcon Funds, who lost $21.1 billion for Citibank, he obviously got fired over this whole mess. That'll show him. And he, he finally got a new job. And- um, and uh, and he's a very controversial guy. Anyway, his his name is is Jack Lew, and he is our treasury treasury secretary, secretary of the United States. Yeah. So <laughs> that SIV grouping lost how much money for Citibank? The the well the SIVs was the big fiasco, and that was a whole nother matter. But Jack Lew, to my knowledge, was doing the leveraged munis. With leveraged the munis at City. Funds. Correct, and that got Sally Krawcheck fired, and then he lost his job too. Because his little division lost twenty one point one billion. Plus, you had the SIV loss on top of it. Obviously, somebody at City called Robert Rubin, and City was deemed too big to fail and got bailed out. Huh, to say, but, to but, say the least. But it's it's shock it's shocking to me how you can blow up people and then become get a new Treasury job. Treasury Secretary. <laughs> that that that's amazing. I I knew that Citigroup was toast long before they actually hit the floor. But I had no idea the losses on leveraged munis were $21 billion. That was the, That's a huge, huge number. That was the Falcon funds. That was a munis leverage eight to one. Mm -hmm. Everybody loved them. I, in fact, I still remember I went to a party in Palm Beach. And everybody's bragging how much money they're Falcon making. Falcon funds. Yeah. You can eight look to one. Well, leverage is great as long as it's going your direction. As soon as the market goes the other direction, you're completely and I toast. Do, I do have a bond business. And my bond guy worked at AIG. Mm -hmm. And he tells a funny story that... That when they kicked Hank Greenberg out of his own firm, because he liked Hank, and they put in this auto insurance guy to run AIG, they wrote all these credit default swaps at bogus rates because everybody wanted a bonus. Mm. So my bond guy actually blames the government for blowing up AIG, okay, and uh, and the collapse of the credit default swap market. But, you know, the bond market's wild. It's been wild this year with right. you've seen in high yield. and. So I wish I knew a little bit more about the bond market. Uh, you know, I have I keep friends in the bond market. I talk to them all the time. They're just a wreck most of the time. I'll be honest with you. I mean, they're a wreck. I mean, it's this is not an easy job. So us stock guys, I think, have a lot easier job than these credit guys.
See, I, I look at the bond side as, what's the big deal? Here's your duration. Here's your, your coupon. Here's your risk. Uh, that stuff practically runs. I once had a conversation yeah. with Paul McCulley. Yeah. Hey, that stuff practically runs itself. What are you guys having so much well, angst out in Pimco? I, I have a we have a bond business. We play in the Triple B era. era. Uh, oh, and, well, that's uh, a whole different. And and so, <laughs> but so our neighborhood's a lot safer than the other neighborhoods. But it's uh, yeah, the distressed debt world is fascinating, and that's where I get all the good Trump stories. Okay, because uh, Trump would beat you up to get forty cents on the dollar. Right. Then he's your best friend. Right. Okay. So the theory is. If he did become president, I realize it's not we don't know yet. But if he did become president, I, I'm sure he's going to cut deals with everybody. I mean, that's well, what that's what he did in business. Well, but yeah. I don't. I can't imagine him cutting a deal saying, "Okay, everybody who's holding U.S. Treasuries, we're going to give you sixty cents on the dollar, and that's how we're going to solve our our deficit." That comment, I think, isn't going to fly. No, uh, but we do have a joke, and this is a joke. <laughs> I want to be clear, and we used to joke that. It's easy to get rid of our deficit. All we have to do is refinance it in negative yielding tips, and our problem went away. Can I tell you something? I don't think that's so much of a joke. I think you look too, <laughs> not too far off in the future. That's a real possibility. Certainly 50-year bonds, when, when the U.S. goes to, to zero rate, um, are, are not unthinkable. That's one way to rethink it. The, by the way, I think the government did help cause AIG to blow up, but in a different way than you realize – uh, Enron had been agitating for the Commodity Futures Modernization Act to get passed, which basically took all those derivatives out of the normal no reserve requirements, no uh, exchange listings, no counterparty disclosures, no just transparency, and AIG wrote $3 trillion worth of them. It was just a non – that started when Hank was there with sure. AIGFP. Sure. Uh, there should be some reasonable amount of – regulation to prevent us from our own worst demons, not an excessive amount of regulation that hamstrings us and prevents us from opening new businesses. That is the never-ending battle. Um, AIG ended up seeing an opening, and they said the quote from AIG FP's president was, it's free money. You just write premiums and count the cash running in. You know, that's what we say about cover call writing. Don't you want the free money? And right. it makes sense in a choppy washing machine market. But sure. if you get in a strong rip-roaring bull market, everything's going to get called away. Right. So there are these windows out there. but as a And people extrapolate them to infinity as opposed to saying this is a temporary cycle and Correct. eventually the world And as a, as a stock guy, you, I, I want to have friends on the credit side. I want to understand what's going on out there because I need to see what's happening. And I respect those guys because I think that's a very, very stressful business. And uh, – I don't All have, the best stock guys always come with a, a some form of a credit background. But as we close here, here's the ultimate irony. The winner in the low interest rate environment are stocks because everybody's borrowing in the bond market, buying their stock back. The multinationals can uh, borrow in Europe and other places even cheaper than can borrow here. And this is and so the stock market is actually dying on us. So my average stock is going to be gone in 14 years from buybacks. And the S&P at the current buyback pace might be gone in 27, 28 years. So obviously that can't go on forever. That's why the market's melting up. It's melting up on order imbalances. It's going up on light volume. It's really, really eerie. But as long as the, the dividends are higher than the treasuries, I, I think people should go. How could you not? Louis, this has been fantastic. Thank you for being so generous with your time. And, and I would be remiss if I did not say... Vonnie Quinn said to say hello. I Great. know you guys know each other from way back when. Um, 
Let me thank my recording engineer, Reggie, my producer, Charlie Vollmer, Taylor Riggs is our booker. Mike Batnick is the head of research. If you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 96 or so such conversations that we've had. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry.